Scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. Hello again, and welcome to Alan on Politics. The opening music that you heard was uh, a song called Union Made. Uh, traditional labor song from way back when. And our guest is the performer on that song, Professor Corey Dolgan of Stonehill College in Massachusetts. Um, he is back again with us for a second week to complete the picture of American fascism, his upcoming book. Um, so if you haven't heard that first episode, please go back and listen to that too. But I think you can start here just as well, because we seem to be going around in circles trying to get a handle on this subject. So, Professor Corey Dolgan, welcome once again. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> Pretend like you're being welcomed back. <laughs> right, that's right. Thank you so much. Okay, we were talking a lot about uh, fascism as a topic and uh, the hallmarks of fascism and identifying some of the United States which were one is you have some strong leader or looking towards some strong leader, which you said is really not one of the more important ones. Also a, um, a like a devil's bargain between corporations seeking profits and the political system willing to, you know, just give them free reign. Of course, corporations themselves are authoritarian systems and the scapegoating of outgroups mostly people that can be identified as what? That you have a picture of the real German, the real American, and then there's these other people that are not quite of us. And in America, a long history of racial exclusion extended now to people, people of other religions, people who have any kind of a foreign background or foreign culture that they're bringing into America, well, like I, maybe my grandfather who came from Ireland would be included among them. Uh, but he was white, at least he looked white. Well, he became white. And that's part of this narrative, right? Which is that whenever we want to talk about uh, one of the new um, boogie men, boogie um, ideas, which is critical race theory, what it is, right, is a recognition of how race is socially constructed, politically constructed, geographically constructed, historically constructed. Um, it's not it's not biological. And so to suggest that Irish people and English people were of the same race at a particular time in history in a particular place would have been anathema to anyone's understanding. My grandfather didn't buy that. The English were the enemy. <laughs> That's right. And the English were the enemy because they treated the Irish like savages and, and, and believed them to be savages. And that, to, so for the English to believe that the Irish were of the same race of human would, would not have been tolerated. But, you know, the Irish can come to the U.S. and while they'll be discriminated against and mistreated, um, alienated, isolated, exploited, over time, they were able to become white. And so to be proud of one's ethnic heritage is certainly uh, historically um, often something to be valued. The idea that someone's proud to be white is a problem in the United States because whiteness has always been about privilege and exploitation. And the laws that created whiteness in this country were always based um, on the institution of slavery initially. So to do critical race theory is to try and understand why in this country whiteness has been so much a part of being an American. 
And what would you say about that? Why is whiteness such an important part of being American? I mean, slavery obviously was uh, became early on conflated with, um, you know, with superior superiority. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you can trace it back to the early slave codes um, in the 17th century. No, am I am I right that there were not just people from Africa were slaves? Were there actually slaves? from other other parts of yeah, the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean um Native Americans um were taken into slavery and and whites were taken into slavery, although mostly through the form of indentured servitude that ended up, you know, servitude for perpetuity. But what happens in the 17th century and many of these laws were actually taken from uh, uh South American uh slavery and, and and laws that were created there around race. But in this country, essentially, there were uh, slave codes passed in, in, in different southern states that suggested, and, and, and I shouldn't say suggested, they legalized definitions of race. And so, for instance, um, only um, Africans uh, and African-Americans could be slaves. Only Black people could be taken in as slaves. You couldn't have other people uh, as slaves. There were laws not only about education and due process, but also um, uh, laws about uh, perpetuity. Originally, slavery was not something that was uh, that that one's uh, progeny were destined to. But with these slave uh, laws that were passed in the 17th century, uh, they were. And so, slavery became a more racialized institution as we passed laws about whiteness and blackness. Again, uh, until that time, it's not that you know the ideas of race didn't exist, but certainly the ideas in this country of white and black did not exist. And there's evidence to make the argument that one of the real inspirations for these laws in places like Virginia had to do with the um, rebellions of groups against the plantation owners and against the um, elite uh, gentry in, 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 uh, in Virginia by mixed groups of whites and blacks that poor whites and indentured servants felt they had more in common with African-American slaves than they did with their masters. And it was after a particular uprising in, uh, in Virginia by uh, Nathaniel Bacon, who put together an army of, of, of poor whites and blacks to push Native Americans back off their land to push Virginia, uh, Virginia's dominion further um, westward, that the soldiers who had participated in that struggle thought they deserved some of that land. And so when they weren't granted any of the new land that they had cleared, they, they fought back and militias were, were brought out, were brought to bear and many of them were killed or captured. And if they were captured, they were eventually hung. But very soon after that, um, the Virginia uh, colonial government passed laws distinguishing between whites and blacks based on race. And the idea was to keep those whites and blacks separate because whites would feel they had much more in common and much more at stake with being white than, than with their class. So that's been a long-term dividing line and specifically to divide is color of skin and other features that look like they are different than what is supposedly the norm. Uh, but with fascism, there's also a lot of others that are put in that category, you were talking last time about um, sexual identity, gender right. identity, um, how trans people are being demonized now. Um, 
because they're supposedly not only different from what is the norm, but they, uh, they somehow seem threatening, like people that cannot be trusted. They're doing horrible things. That's uh, right. Because they're weird. And also, I might add, academics, intellectuals, they're sure. in that grab bag of people that are soiling the, uh, the pureness of our, our, our country. Right. That's right. That's right. As if there ever was a pureness, but um, you know that's part of that's part of the mythology, right? Well, you, you know something's wrong here, so somebody's got to be to blame. Somebody's got to be doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, the a couple of the other kind of components of, uh, of fascism. I'm, in the previous episode, uh, I think we finished talking a little bit about violence. You know, part of that violence comes from the legitimacy of doing whatever it takes to put down this uh this 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 other group that that's being um that's being isolated but again we're also we are lumping all these other things together right so what becomes really important well masculinity becomes crucial and a traditional idea of masculinity right this kind of power this kind of um lack of uh reflective reason or analysis all of the intellectual activities that we might consider part of academia are are gendered and they they become these are these are what weak people do. This is what people who are too feminine do, right? So we're against that. We're about action. We're about power. Uh, we're about being masculine. And so everything from intellectual activity to gender identity comes under attack as part of those people who are not part of the we, you know. And 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 really, it is that populist identity of who we are again, is that kind of contradictory idea that we are the masses, but we are pure, right? We, we are everyone, um, we, the we, but in order to be the we, you have to outcast entire groups of people who can't so be part of that populism. The we is the right kind of people because they are essentially what people should be. That's right. And the re rest of you are not for one reason or another, you're not capable or you're not willing to be the right kind of person. So you're a threat and you're undermining the rest of us who are trying to do the right thing. And now we got to take extreme measures because you've become such a threat that we can't use what? No. Traditional well, means of keeping you in your no, place. That's right. Well, and in some ways, you know, the 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 traditional means are in fact violence, right? That we we harken back to what it's really at least is. in the background. Yeah, I mean, you know, our country is founded on violence, right? Our country is founded on theft. There's probably nothing more traditional than deeming people uh, who, who are in your way as, uh, as less than human, as savages, as others, and, uh, and taking what you will, and then justifying it, you know, with some half-assed religious, uh, you know, doctrine, or even in the case of the British, Lockean ideas about land use. Um, there's, always, there's always something uh, traditional to harken back to. I think the most the most dangerous part of what we're dealing with today um, is this legitimacy and, uh, and penchant for trying to resolve your differences um, with violence. Well, let, let's take a step then to the alternative to violence, which would be the ability to reason and negotiate and compromise in all the things that in politics are now regarded as just well, stupid, <laughs> right. like doesn't get you anywhere. And this is another parallel I see with Nazi Germany is the breakdown of democratic institutions, like mm -hmm. what supposedly democratic institutions, right. what, what 
to the degree to which they had people able to vote and get people into office, and then those people were supposed to produce laws, it wasn't functioning well. Okay. And so the, the, the sense was, even among the people, especially people who were followers of fascism, the sense was that it's useless trying to talk, trying to reason. Um, the government's hopeless. You got people in there that just talk endlessly. They can't get anything done. And so that's where we're at now. And Joe Biden, our president, is trying to demonstrate that, yeah, I can get things done. Hasn't got a lot done so far. <laughs> and to me, the, the, I mean, they, in the news cycle, they hype particular political battles to death. But this yeah. one, I think, is a real one. What's going yeah. on in the Congress right now over these so-called right. infrastructure bills is really a test of whether this kind of democratic process can deliver anything or if it's always going to be failing, even though the reasons it fail have nothing to do with the inability to, to talk. It's something other. Sure. Well, and, and that is where I end Kill It to Save It, right? It, it is this notion that, in fact, what primarily Republicans have done over the last 50 years is to kill government uh, in order to so, so supposedly save the country, right? And so nowadays, you don't even have a functioning Republican Party, except that it is is the party of no, right? It's the, I mean, they, they're, they're not even really opposing what Biden's offering in a very, um, you know, outspoken way. There might be a couple of congressional districts where they're still running ads about, you know, tax and spend liberals. But for the most part, they're just watching. They refuse to govern. They refuse to partake in the debate. They refuse to allow things up for debate. And really, you just have Democrats, you know, negotiating with themselves at this point, uh, which is both perverse and ironic. But, you know, that that's where we are as a country, because the Republicans have, for all intents and purposes, destroyed many of the democratic institutions that we used to consider uh, sacred. Even the Texas abortion law, I was listening to the legal arguments today in front of the Supreme Court. You know, the idea that, that essentially the state of Texas has decided that they don't need the mechanisms of state anymore, that anybody can enforce uh, an abortion law anybody, in fact, anybody has to bring somebody up, right? It's it, it, because it would be unconstitutional for the state enforcement uh, folks to actually go out and, and, and arrest people. It has to be done by, by citizens in this law. And so they've really gotten rid of so many of the mechanisms of the judiciary and law enforcement in order to create a law in which individuals now, I'm assuming vigilantes, right, will be going mm -hmm. throughout the state trying to arrest doctors, people who drove people to, uh, to get abortions. Um, you know, anybody who was connected to these things at all is liable to be arrested by their neighbor. Well, now I'm thinking of other parallels with slavery. <laughs> like it wasn't the fugitive slave law. I don't recall that that designated people could go out and drag back slaves without any government authority just because That's they right. were slaves. They had the right to do that. In and fact, early in the police South were patrolling slaves and the first they, police they were forces, private citizens. The first police forces, formal police forces in this country were created in the South to uh, to enforce uh, slavery and the the, uh, the uh, runaway slave um, laws. And in fact, in many of those states, it was required by law that anyone who owned slaves participated in militias to 
capture enslaved workers if they had run away. So and in fact, many of the, those laws required the participation of the non-slave population um, to participate in the um, enforcement of those laws. So in essence, what you have is kind of an informal governance system. One of the things in political science, they always define government as having a monopoly on violence. Well, in these cases, it doesn't. Just like the Nazis would go out in the streets to enforce their will uh, without any government uh, legal right. sanction, That's you're right. seeing the same thing. Let private citizens take the law into their own hands. Again, I'm thinking about people with guns showing up in the state legislature and et cetera, et cetera. Um, That's right. So this, this sense that violence is not only necessary, but it's somehow appropriately in the hands of the people who are the right people. And, and it's that's tradition. not the people who have won office. It's tradition, right? That, that's what the Klan was about. Going back to Andrew Jackson, you know, Andrew Jackson gained his reputation as a, as a murderer among Native Americans well before the Trail of Tears. When he took his own, you know, personally formed militia to clear um, Native Americans like the Creeks and the Choctaws off their land in Tennessee, and in fact, then take that land. And much of his early wealth came from um, his ability to, quote unquote, clear the land of Native Americans. So, you know, this use of violence um, in this purposeful way goes way back. And I would say one of the parts of the new book, I think, that will be enlightening to many is to think about how much of Mussolini and, and Hitler and other historically declared fascists took from the U.S., that if you look at the rise of Mussolini in the 20s in Italy, in 1919 in this country, we have a year of tremendous violence. From the Red Summer, which were dozens of essentially white race riot against blacks, cities all over the country were in flames and primarily based on the idea from white uh, soldiers coming back from World War I that many black soldiers coming back from World War I, um, many activists, the anti-lynching campaign, et cetera, had given African-Americans a sense that they had rights and that they should have rights uh, as equal citizens. The rise of places like Tulsa and uh, uh, Greenwood and we, the Tulsa massacre became um, really uh, well known again uh, because of Biden and the attention to, the, to Black Wall Street and the destruction of Black Wall Street in this country. All of those things were happening in 1919 and all of these white rebellions against them took place and uh, so many and so so murderous that they were deemed the Red Summer. Well, right after, you know, the, uh, the Red Summer was the, uh, the rise uh, against um, uh, communists and, the, and, the, the, and workers. And you had essentially following a Red Summer, you had this tremendous deportation and violence against organized labor through January the, the, uh, 1920, uh, the Palmer Raids, which was the, you know, the progenitor of the FBI. And so through this whole year of 1919, this tremendous violence against non-whites and also against um, the left and labor activists, it was, it was a precursor in many ways to what Mussolini would do in Italy. And, and, and really it's pretty well documented that uh, Nazi Germany used um, US race laws uh, and segregation laws to infuse into their laws around, um, around Jews. And so 
there is a famous conference in 1934, I think, where you know they're looking at all the ways in which they're going to institutionalize um, anti-Semitism. And one of the ways in which, in which they, in, they create these laws and enforce these laws is by looking at race laws in the US. Ironic uh, to some degree, perverse in some degree, they wouldn't use the one drop law that was being used in most Southern states. One America. drop of blood. The one drop of blood. They thought that was too draconian. <laughs> it, it, it went too I, far even for the Nazis. Went too, even, even U.S. racists went too far for the Nazis. Well, believe it or not, we're approaching the end of another half an hour. And what I, what I desperately want to do is leave listeners with some hope. <laughs> yes, yes, hope. So uh, you did end your last book, which was, again, let me mention it because people can actually buy that one. It's out. Uh, Kill It to Save It, An Autopsy of Capitalism's Triumph Over Democracy. You ended that one with what in 20, early 2017, I guess you, you finished the book, uh, were some signs of hope, like Bernie Sanders' run for the presidency, even though he lost the nomination and Trump won. You, you knew that at the time, and still you, you said Black Lives Matter was hopeful. Um, Bernie Sanders was hopeful. So what do we have to hope for now? I mean, did we escape outright fascism in the 30s simply because Franklin Roosevelt was this heroic figure? What, what are the conditions in the United yeah. States that allow us to prevent fascism from re reasserting itself? Well, not to be overly simplistic, it's anti-fascism. Um, and I think, I think to some degree we have to... And that's why they demonize that. That's right, and that's right, and and you know the the notion that Antifa is the real problem um, in this country is laughable, but actually on a, on a global level, um, you know the anti-fascist movement is very strong uh, in Europe and and in other places around the world. I think it's what you know gives gives me hope. I think in this country in particular, you know, I talked about Black Lives Matter, you know, not knowing what would happen last uh, summer, uh, twenty twenty, but clearly. It's one of the few national social movements that exists that, that I think gives me hope. But, but I also think that we need to be very careful about looking at people like Joe Biden as the solution. You know, I think we have to be very careful at looking at the kind of quote unquote great man or even great woman figures that are somehow going to lead us out because I would argue uh, just as I did in, in Kill to Save It, I wrote the book assuming Hillary Clinton would win until she didn't, but most of what I was talking about would still be in play. And so I think that, you know, regardless of who we have as a president, and, and you know, I would hate to see a return of Trump, but I do think that we're still seeing the rise of fascism in front of us with a Democratic House and Senate and, and, and a Democratic president. And we need to fight back in the streets, and I, and I don't mean violently, but I do think we need to attend school board meetings, and we need to attend town hall meetings, and, and we need to be in the streets demonstrating and protesting um, when people are trying to take away the rights of the least among us. And I think that we need to protect our teachers, and we need to protect doctors. The anti-vax campaign uh, is not about people who just don't want to take a shot. It's about people who want to hurt people who are giving those shots uh, and people who are trying to encourage other people and might even create mandates that, uh, that, that are, are natural to the running of um, institutions. 
everything from uh, flu vaccines to buckling seatbelts have been um, upheld by the Supreme Court as uh, legitimate uh, requirements for different types of jobs. And so it's not just the debate over whether someone should get, get, be able to mandate a vaccine or not, it becomes uh, whether or not the, that, that person should be safe in their homes. And so these are the places where I think we need to be prepared as a population to beat back fascism. And I think the more we get together and the more we create this kind of solidarity around some of these very basic things, labor rights is another one, the more we work with our communities and establish ties and the more we have a vision of what a real democracy might mean, not some of the kind of um, democratic institutions that we've had in the past, but some real, real democracy founded in real participation. I think that's our hope. That's our hope against fascism. Well, I, I would agree with those things. Um, let me reiterate them. Uh, one is we, meaning all of us, have a role to play in this. We need to speak out when we see these kinds of tendencies, emergency, uh, emerging. Ten yeah, it is an emergency, but these tendencies <laughs> are emerging. <laughs> speak out, organize, join a group of some kind, be willing to show up, to march, and the importance of having a vision which I think is one of the things that's sorely lacking. We, we have a lot of ferment, people wanting to be involved, people wanting to do things, wanting to go beyond just electing people, but it's hard to have that vision. I guess the vision is primarily, let's go back to the uh, social welfare state. Um, I'm not sure that's adequate, but it's a step in a better direction anyway. No, that's right. That's right. Well, and I do think, you know, so much, so many of the provisions in the kind of um, legislation that Biden's put forward these are useful provisions that will strengthen the ability for pe people to participate. Um, and so, so many of them work, but I think also the arguments against the ones that have been taken away, like free community colleges and, um, and family leave and things of that sort, you know, are the same tired old arguments, but, you know, they've been made by Democrats and Republicans. So I don't think it's a party issue right now. It really is a democratic issue. It really is a little d democracy issue but it's probably the most important set of issues that we have in front of us. And what we will do as human beings, as people, as real individuals who are free, is, is the more we struggle, the more free we may become. That's what they say is that, you know, it's always been a struggle for your freedom. And I, I think the struggle is not necessarily going abroad with guns. It's right here, not with guns. <laughs> that's right. No, that's right. If it becomes extreme enough, maybe... And we may not be far, but I hope we're long ways from that. Anyway, I said it, you didn't. Uh, Professor Corey <laughs> Dolgan, <laughs> thank you very much for being here and sharing Absolutely. your knowledge and your wisdom. Again, his book coming out is American Fascism sometime in the near future. And uh, I hope to have you back again, maybe after the book's out and you finally decide uh, what goes in and what stays out. That's right. Hopefully I'll have an answer by then. Yeah, we're all looking for that. So we'll wait with bated breath. Um, I'm going to end the show with another number that you had performed on your CD that is more for less. Thanks again. And Thank you, great Alan. talking with you.